Chapter 2 Called The Way of Trust God has a special purpose, a special love, a special providence for all those He has created. God cares for each of us individually, watches over us, provides for us. The circumstances of each day of our lives, of every moment of every day, are provided for us by Him. Father Walter Chiswick The purpose of this chapter is to better understand our purpose. Much is mystery, for sure, but there's also important ground to be gained here. The quote above says it plainly, You were made with a special purpose in mind. Honestly, though, we hear this kind of thing so often, you're special. It can land in our mental spam folder. That's why it matters who wrote these words. The author was a man who was nearly martyred for the crime of being a Catholic priest. Father Walter Chiswick was an American missionary who found himself trapped behind the Iron Curtain of Soviet Russia at the end of the Second World War. Beaten, interrogated, and accused of spying for the Vatican, he endured many torturous years, first at the notorious Lubyanka prison in Moscow, and then doing hard labor in a remote Siberian work camp. The experience broke him. As a young Jesuit, he had once prided himself on his willpower, physical strength, and cool head. But under the relentless pressure of torture, he snapped, something he freely admitted in later years. Eventually, he was released and returned through the intervention of U.S. authorities, but he never forgot the lessons he learned. In his spiritual testament, He Leadeth Me, Chiswick described the interior journey that accompanied his harrowing exodus. There he stated, quote, the greatest grace God can give such a man is to send him a trial he cannot bear with his own powers, and then sustain him with his grace so he may endure to the end and be saved. Unquote. Your Plans and God's Plans This is Brother Sam again, continuing where we left off in describing our first vocation, the universal call to holiness. It probably wasn't the best news you've ever heard that our plans for happiness, since they're conditioned by our union with Christ, are always intersected by the cross. But in light of the immense possibility of the call, the greatness Jesus wants to give us, the burden is balanced by a sense of the glory God wants to reveal. It's a glory we won't know fully until heaven, but it is also made present to us here and now by our experience of Christian joy. Holiness, then, is found in the dynamic working out of our plans in light of the surpassing plan of salvation in God. Again, being honest, there's something about this that seems uninviting to modern people. A universal call is to one-size-fits-all and raises hard questions in our minds. Is God going to override my dreams with his plans? Will he ask something from me that I don't want or am not able to do? Supposing he somehow changes my desires, does that mean I'm forced without full use of my will? We probably already see the lies behind these fears, but they're still very real. And God doesn't mind hard questions, so it's okay to ask them. Ask boldly then, but also be willing to quiet your heart to hear God's reply. Discuss. Do any of these questions above hit home for you? If so, rephrase them in your own words. Do you recognize any lies or half-truths behind your doubts and fears? 
Since I'm an artist, God often speaks to me in pictures. Here's the way he answered such questions for me. Imagine your plans as that horizontal timeline moving from left to right. If God isn't part of those plans, they simply begin and end, flatline, so to speak. At death, all personal plans for happiness come to nothing. You can't take it with you. Now, picture God's plans as a perpendicular line ascending from below and moving upwards to intersect with your plans. What happens at the point of intersection? Alarm! C confusion! When the two lines meet, it can be pretty distressing at first, but such fears, for the most part, are unfounded. The worst case you brace for never really happens. Instead, you find that God's plans and your plans begin to merge and interweave in a singular act of grace. What felt at first like a divine invasion is really an invitation. St. John Paul II says it so well, quote, To discover the presence of God in our individual stories, not to feel orphans any longer, but rather to know that we have a Father in whom we can trust completely. This is the great turning point that transforms our merely human outlook and leads man to understand that he cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. Within the Christian community, each person must discover his or her own personal vocation and respond to it with generosity. Unquote. When the horizontal and vertical lines of your plans and God's meet, the collision has profound creative power, your own personal big bang, so to speak. Somewhere in that point of intersection, you discover the special purpose Chiswick described above. This is the beginning of what John Paul says is your personal vocation, the second of three vocations we'll explore in this chapter. What's a personal vocation? When the pure light of the universal call to holiness meets the distinctive structure of your own personality, it refracts like a crystal in a distinctive array of colorful luminosity. There's something unifying in this, that the same light shines on every baptized believer but the uniqueness of the surface it strikes creates the radiant, distinctive effect that is proper to each. This gives us some idea of the way our first vocation, universal call to holiness, illuminates and complements our second vocation, personal vocation. What does this look like in practice? Russell Shaw and Germain Griset are Catholic theologians who have written about the distinctive and necessary effort we must undertake to understand and live our personal vocation. Quote, each has a particular set of gifts, opportunities, and other attributes, including weaknesses and strengths, that is uniquely our own, and each of us is obliged to examine that package to determine its potential for communicating God's truth and love, confronting evil, including the evil in ourselves, and dealing rightly with it. In this way, we discover our personal vocations, the particular ways God calls us as unique individuals to help meet the needs of the church and the world and cooperate with him in redemption." Unquote. Ryan O'Hara, SPO content director and popular Catholic speaker, is especially good at putting clear words on complex ideas. He sums up what Shaw and Griset are saying about personal vocation in this way. It is the overlap of your greatest passion or ability with the greatest needs of the world around you. In other words, this is not a Catholic version of live your dream, but a call to live discipleship more deeply. Your special purpose, Shaw and Griset are saying, has a specific orientation to Christ, which gets clearer when it aligns with God's overall purpose, the work of redemption. 
This begins with a better understanding of your own, quote, set of gifts, opportunities, and other attributes, unquote. But how exactly are you supposed to, quote, examine that package, unquote? Natural means only get you so far. Think of all the self-knowledge tests out there, StrengthsFinder, DISC, Myers-Briggs, Four Temperaments, etc. Have you taken any? Do you find them helpful? My own experience is mixed. I like the insights they provide, but I'm also aware that they're only as effective as what I put into them. So, for example, if I've never done much work at self-reflection, there's not a lot of useful information to put in and even less to get out. Even at their best, such tests only represent the horizontal, human piece, the raw material for understanding our personal vocation. God's intervention, his words spoken into our lives directly and deeply, is the other essential component, and it's often not what we expect. I'll use some familiar examples from the Bible to illustrate. Moses knew he wasn't good at public speaking, but God called him to be a prophet to the people Israel, the one through whom the law would be communicated. Peter was a foul-mouthed fisherman until Jesus called him to be a fisher of men and a powerful preacher of the gospel. At the Annunciation, when God called Mary to be the human mother of his divine son, she asked, quote, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? Unquote. Luke 1, 34. The question makes no sense apart from what tradition tells us, that Mary had already made a vow of lifelong virginity, something permitted in the law. See Numbers 30, verses 1 through 9. In light of this, Mary is our guide for engaging this crossroads between our expectations and God's intervention. Mary isn't being defiant, and she's not demanding to see the whole plan. She's asking in order to understand and pondering what has been said to her. That's our model, as we consider our unique purpose, our own personal vocation. We begin with Walter Chiswick because he gives us a striking modern example of the unexpected interplay of natural gifts and supernatural grace. If any personality tests existed in the days of his Jesuit formation, they would have highlighted the many strengths of such a promising young priest. What a mere human test could never discover, though, was the way God would use not his strengths, but his weakness, and thereby reveal Chiswick's unrepeatable personal vocation. Chiswick suffered from a spiritual malady most common among Americans, self-reliance. Only when he reached the limit of his own ability was he able to understand his spiritual poverty and from there to recognize his personal call. The revelation came after he broke under torture. From the depths of his shame, he heard the Lord speaking with new clarity and inviting him to follow in a new way. He later recounted that God, quote, was asking of me an act of total trust, allowing for no interference or restless striving on my part, no reservations, no exceptions, no areas where I could set conditions or seem to hesitate. He was asking a complete gift of self, nothing held back. It demanded absolute faith. The future, hidden as it was, was hidden in his will, and therefore acceptable to me, no matter what it might bring. The past, with all its failures, was not forgotten. It remained to remind me of the weakness of human nature and the folly of putting any faith in self. Unquote. What was Chiswick's personal vocation? To receive every moment as a direct gift of God and to embrace each day as God's will, regardless of the circumstances. And notice that the Lord used his strength of will in the end. 
Without it, Chiswick never would have survived and returned home to offer his remarkable witness. This gives insight about the nature of a personal vocation. First, what it's not, it isn't our exclusive brand or personalized spirituality. Rather, it's a gift to be shared. Personal vocation is the way each of us receives the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and embracing it through the specific experiences of our lives, we offer the Church a distinctive witness, a refreshing vision of holiness shaped by our own time and place. There are other examples. For Mother Teresa, it was about seeing Christ in the distressing disguise of the poor. For St. Francis Xavier, it was to set all afire for the gospel in Asia. For St. Therese of Lisieux, it was to be love in the heart of the church. For Chiswick, it was about finding God in all things. And although his was an especially difficult path, the trials he endured give force to his testimony. It's as if he's saying to us, I found God in the most extreme circumstances, which means you can find him in your daily struggles too. Personal vocation then allows us to see the rich variety of possibilities within the one universal call to holiness. What about you? If you want to discover your own personal vocation, where to begin? Start by paying attention to the way God blesses your natural gifts. Where do you see grace flowing through things you already love to do? Is it caring for the sick? Teaching difficult ideas or solving complex problems? Maybe it's advising others about relationships or helping them manage time and tasks better. Don't forget to examine your weaknesses as well especially where you find the Lord working through these. Also, try to notice where people seek you out or affirm your abilities. These provide initial clues, and while God's intervention may take your natural gifts in unexpected directions, your own work of self-understanding and personal development is never wasted. Grace builds on nature. Particular Vocation, the one we're waiting for. Within the wider scope of the universal and the gradual unfolding of the personal, we come at last to the particular. Your particular vocation is also called your life state vocation. While the universal call is not discerned, the same applies to all, and the personal is discovered over the course of life, the particular is distinct. Because it involves a life-organizing commitment to a specific state, it requires a more intentional discernment. That's a lot, so let's break it down. First, what does the church mean by state in life? State refers to stability, as in something that has a specific shape that endures. A life state vocation, then, is one that calls for a permanent, definitive gift of self. These are lasting calls till death do us part, rather than fluid calls to this job or that city. They require a clear public pledge of fidelity, come what may. The Church identifies two sacramental states, holy orders and matrimony. It also recognizes consecrated life, religious brothers, sisters, consecrated virgins, as a life state rooted in our baptism. Specifically, then, these particular vocations are marriage, priesthood, and consecrated life. Each is characterized by the public profession of lifelong promises or vows that are recognized and approved by the Church. With a better idea of the categories and qualities of a life state, the next question has to do with decision-making or discernment. What exactly do we mean by discernment? To discern is literally to pull apart or separate. 
It refers to the prayerful process of sorting through our experience of living both the universal and the personal vocations to gain clarity about our particular vocation. Though mission is part of the picture, this is not primarily about a task or function God is calling us to take on. Instead, it's the culmination of yours and God's answers to three questions. One, who am I going to be? Identity. Two, what am I going to do? Mission or role. And three, with whom will I journey through life? State in life. The point is, every life state vocation is a call to relationship. It requires us to know ourselves well enough to make a lasting gift of ourselves. The diagram on this page shows one way to visualize the relationship between our universal, personal, and particular vocations. It locates our life state vocation in the larger context of the other two. It doesn't mean you've got to nail holiness or have the personal totally figured out before you can consider your particular vocation. Rather, the more progress you make on one and two, the better choices you're going to make about three. And keep in mind that even though the third is very important, it's not essential. There are saints and blesseds in the church who never had a particular vocation. For example, Saints Francisco and Jacinta Marto, Blessed Chiara Lucy Badano, or Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati. Three vocations chart shows three concentric circles, each labeled with a different vocation. The largest outer circle is universal vocation. The next largest concentric circle is personal vocation. The smallest circle in the center, particular life state vocation. Which then will it be? With this in mind, which one out of all the possible life state options will it be? Married, ordained, consecrated? Most practicing Catholics, when they think about a vocation, are thinking about these. There's also a common assumption, especially among younger Catholics, that their particular vocation holds the key to that ideal, happy future we've talked about so much. Once you get married, ordained, or intervowed life, the expectation goes, you finally start to feel complete. Some of this comes from our own observations. We've seen friends and family members become more peaceful and content when they entered their particular life state vocations. The disconnect comes when we make the leap of pairing this visible happiness with the happily ever after expectations we've absorbed from so much entertainment media. This applies to us too, men. Finding your life state in this view means finding that happiness your heart tells you is just around the corner. Many, it seems, make a disappointing discovery. At the unique bend in the road that is their particular vocation, the path ahead is more or less the same as the path behind. Still full of rises and falls, clarity and confusion, breakdowns and breakthroughs. In other words, the life you've been living doesn't become something completely different. You're the same you. Life is the same mix of certainty and mystery. This is not to diminish the joy and the beauty of entering a stable, committed, and fruitful way of life. It's only to keep our expectations balanced by reality. If you feel like you already know this, I'd like to offer a reality check. There's a direct correlation between the way you understand this to be true and the way you react to what has been said about the universal and the personal vocations. If you feel less energized by the first two, even subconsciously, that probably means you're banking on the particular, the life state, to deliver lasting happiness. Take a minute to consider this. Discuss. 
Where is your hope of happiness, really? Is it in God's will as expressed in your current vocation? That is the universal call to holiness, emerging personal vocation. Or is it somewhere off in the future, that lasting sense of satisfaction you might be expecting to feel once you finally settle down? Timing is everything when it comes to discernment. That's important to keep in mind now as we look at four necessary traits for God-based decision-making. The D attitudes laid out below should inform your game plan, but there's no assumption that you are in fact ready to discern. That's an important conversation to have with God and with your pastoral guides. And I can't say this clearly enough. There's really no need to rush this process. Four Attitudes of Successful Discernment What are four essential qualities for a successful discerner? They are trust actively, explore indifferently, understand clearly, and ask honestly. When you set out to discover God's will, don't fail to bring these attitudes along with you. Trust actively. Trust in God is essential as we navigate discernment. If we don't truly believe that he has our best future in mind, we'll go with our own plan or grasp at whatever looks good and miss the rich opportunity of waiting on the Lord. Trust becomes active when we make costly decisions that communicate confidence in his plan. So, for example, here's what not trusting looks like. I'm really attracted to this particular girl in the community and want to ask her out. She's beautiful, seeking the Lord, and living as a sold-out disciple for Christ. I know I should take some time to be single and grow in my relationship with God and the bros, but what, what if I miss out? What if I take time for that dating fast and she's gone? Where does that leave me? I mean, I've been waiting for someone like this for so long. This inner monologue changes when Brother X decides to put God's plans first by saying, is there a really awesome sister in the community I want to ask out? For sure. But I'm serious about taking this time of singleness to seek God. If she's a woman the Lord wants me to date someday, it'll work out that way. And then to the best of his ability, he lets it go. No long convos with her after the prayer meetings. No late night texting back and forth. He really leaves it in God's hands. Explore indifferently. Am I open to either vocation, marriage or celibacy? This is huge. Before discerning, we should have at least a basic understanding that God can fulfill us either way. The goal here is to be truly open. And being indifferent doesn't mean you don't care. It's more about balance. St. Ignatius calls it elective indifference and uses the example of a pointer on a scale. The pointer stays in the middle, more or less, and so should our willingness to weigh both directions. It's the ability to say, I'm okay with being led either way. Can you still have preferences? Absolutely. But these don't predetermine the outcome. Remember, God cares about your desires, so the way you lean is an important factor in discernment. You can let your preferences inform your reflections, just don't make them determine the final answer. God still wants to speak, and by now you know, he has plenty of surprises. Understand clearly. This one is about doing your homework. Can anybody be totally prepared before choosing their life state? Probably not, but this much we can say for sure. Many people are totally unprepared when they set out to discern, and the thing is done before they even know they've begun. 
well, the two of us, we just sort of clicked with each other, so it, it must be God's will. Are there examples where this worked out okay? <laughs> Thanks be to God, yes. But there are many more times this turns out badly. What then should you look at before you leap? Self and states. Self. Am I in a good state, spiritually, financially, and maturity-wise, to discern? Can I stand on my own, or am I looking for someone, something else, to fix the instability in me, the things I don't like about myself or my life? Are there major wounds or areas of sin that I need to address? Hard truth. They don't just disappear once you enter your life state. Speaking of... States. Do I really understand the possible life state directions God might call me into? The next two chapters will explore these in greater depth. Ask honestly. Am I really serious about this? The final attitude for healthy discernment is a gut check. We want to uncover a kind of pseudo-discernment that isn't really about laying one's life down on the altar of God's will. The discerner is merely going through the motions, making an obligatory gesture to ease any guilt about carrying out some predetermined plan. Authenticity is essential. If you're tempted to think this doesn't apply in your case, please heed the wisdom of Father Chiswick. Quote, This tendency to set acceptable conditions upon God, to seek unconsciously to make His will for us coincide with our desires, is a very human trait. And the more important the situation is, the more totally we are committed to it, or the more completely our future depends upon it, then the easier it becomes for us to blind ourselves into thinking that what we want is surely what God must also want. We can see but one solution only, and naturally we assume that God will help us reach it. In any case, I am sure that this tendency was strong in me. Unquote. This wisdom is especially important as we describe in the coming pages the married and celibate vocations. Alyssa brings her own rich experience of married life to the next chapter. I'll return in the following one on celibacy. We'll conclude with Alyssa describing the how-to of discernment in greater detail. She'll also lay out a vision for that way of life most of our readers are currently living, single life. There is so much more here than you imagine.